Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, Michael Weiss. Michael is the news director at New Limes Magazine and the co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we have Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Andrea is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security and former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia. And also in Washington, we have Ed Luce. Ed is the U.S. National Editor and a columnist for the FT. How are you today, Ed? I'm good. Thank you, David. Good. Well, the reason I ask how are you, Ed, is because I want to do a little focus here on health-related issues because inadvertently or otherwise, Michael has become an expert in the uh, health of Vladimir Putin, or at least in public views of the health of Vladimir Putin. Maybe you could share a little bit, Michael, on what you've discovered on this subject. Well, I mean, the short answer is I haven't really discovered anything except that there is now rumors about Putin's ill or terminal health have, have circulated for many years much like the purported cancer that uh, Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has has been battling for the last 15 years. There's really been no evidence to suggest there's anything wrong with him. But even before the invasion of Ukraine and certainly thereafter, there has been a steady uptick in allegations and slightly more of a drilling down into what might ail him. So I did a story based on a lot of these rumors, including the most recent ones, and also a bit of information that I did receive, but I just want to caution everybody, this is not something I am confirming. This is not 
by any means proven. And, and clearly the Russian presidential administration is not giving me a, a thumbs up or thumbs down on it. But what is interesting is a few weeks into the war, I received first an email by a Western venture capitalist who said, listen, I, I work with Russian oligarchs and I have done for many years. And I was talking to one recently who suggested to me that Putin is in bad, a bad way. He's been battling um, a series of ailments, but blood cancer is sort of the most serious one at the moment. And I kind of rolled my eyes and said, uh-huh, sure. And I said, well, it's one thing for you to tell me you heard this. It's another thing for the oligarch to say it. And the guy said, well, what if I recorded him saying it? And I said, well, that, that would kind of move the needle a bit. And he did. And I can't really divulge who the venture capitalist is. And I was honor bound not to divulge who the oligarch is because that was the condition of me receiving the tape. And also from an ethical standpoint, I mean, the guy didn't just talk about Putin having cancer. He also railed against Putin's war, said he's destroyed Russia. He's taken us back 50 years. He's crazy. Uh, we all hope that he dies of, of his oncological problems and so on and so forth. So if I were to disclose this person's identity, he would be susceptible to state retaliation. And that's not something I want on my conscience. But suffice it to say, I was able to a, established that it was indeed the guy who I'd been told would be saying these things, distinctive voice, and he more or less identifies himself on the tape. And B, he is seen to be close to the Russian government. And I had a former European security chief who said that in 2014, he was part of a select group of people, mostly businessmen, who had to kind of come to Jesus with Putin personally, because Putin was saying, I'm about you know, I'm going to take over Crimea and you need to gird your loins for international economic blowback. And let me also explain why I'm doing this. So, you know, the, really the definition of an oligarch, it isn't just a Russian billionaire. It's somebody who acts as a plenipotentiary of the regime is kind of the public face laundering Russia's economic reputation, peddling influence and so on. And indeed, most of this conversation that the guy had wasn't about Putin and his health, it was about how do I meaning the oligarchy, indemnify myself from the international stain that is Russia now, the pariah effect, sanctions, et cetera. I can provide affidavits from various banks in the, in the European Union and so on and so forth. So I found it newsworthy that these rumors have reached such a high level and also certainly newsworthy that somebody of this guy's stature is just quite down on the Russian president and, and is pining for his death. Andrea, you've uh, spent time looking at intelligence reports like this. And uh, you also wrote a good piece in Politico on a related question, which is, is Russia better off with Putin? And you suggest the answer is changing, and it may indeed be better off. We'd long thought perhaps what we would get would be worse. But let's first start with Michael's report. How do you react to reports like this? I think with a heavy dose of, uh, you know, be skeptic, uh, being skeptical, highly skeptical, because as Michael notes in his report over the years, there's been multiple kind of rumors or speculation about the poor state of Putin's health. He's disappeared from the public eye every once in a while. And so, you know, pretty skeptical that this is the case. Although I will say, given, you know, pictures of Putin's health, his distance that he's keeping from members of his regime, the very long tables, his gripping of the table that Michael also notes. There was really interesting footage of a moment when Putin was meeting Lukashenko and his hand kind of uncontrollably started shaking. So 
there have been a lot of really visible um, signals that perhaps his health is not what it used to be. But it's, again, it's hard to know, is it fatal? How long does he have? All of those types of questions. But I guess, you know, the, the interesting thing in the what, where I've done some research is trying to think through what happens when these longtime leaders die in office. And I actually did a piece, I mean, many, many years ago in the Journal of Democracy that was called When Dictators Die. It's not actually that uncommon for authoritarian leaders to die in office. And I think when we looked at the data from 1946, that there had been 80 authoritarian leaders who died in office. And you can just think about, you know, Venezuela's Chavez or Kim Jong-il or Stalin or Kenyatta or uh, in, in Kenya or Tito in Yugoslavia. So this is a common occurrence, and especially after leaders have been in power as long as Putin has. Actually, the most likely way that they exit office is from natural death in office. And there's been some really great work on personalism that suggests the longer a leader is in office, the less likely they are to be removed at the hands of insiders such that death in office becomes the most common trajectory of their departure. So it wouldn't be uncommon. And, you know, especially before the war, my expectation would have been that Putin would stay in office until he dies of natural causes. I think the headline or the key takeaway in thinking about what it would mean for Russia is that it's actually tends to be a remarkably unremarkable event. And that when authoritarian leaders die in office in a vast majority of cases, so when we looked at all of the cases, it was about 85% of the time, the same authoritarian regime persists. And even in these highly personalist regimes, which tend to be highly contingent or you know, depend so strongly on an individual, um, it was something like in 75% of cases, the same authoritarian regime persists because all of the elite are looking around, they want to identify a consensus candidate who can protect their access to office. And so, you know, if he does die, the key question would be how impactful, how consequential would that be for Russia? In all likelihood, authoritarianism persists and we would get someone from within the same ruling elite who would likely be guided by many of the same overarching foreign policy principles that Putin is. So, Ed, before we move on to another subject, I'm wondering if you have a reaction to this, perhaps in the context of what if he lives? You know, it, it looks like if he lives and this war continues in the direction that it's going, there are not many scenarios that suggest Putin will end up with more power or a better position or more global influence than he has right now, absent a role he might play in some global conflict, which would capture everybody's attention. But assuming that doesn't happen, it seems like he's on the downswing. What's, what's your thought? One of the most interesting aspects to Michael's piece, uh, which I thought was, um, it was, a very, it was a very interesting piece all around, was the possible motivations of FSB putting out this directive to bureaus around Russia that Putin didn't have cancer, which of course then immediately implants the thought into everybody's head. And what are the wheels within wheels here? And whether there are games being played, palace struggles going on. And there have been other signs of that. I mean, I am by far the least you know, qualified person here to talk about what an oncologist or an endocrinologist, I can't even pronounce it, would say, or what signs of ill health would be, even though I did notice the same hand waving with Lukashenko and table gripping and foot tapping and puffiness in 
Putin's face and have the same hopes that, you know, maybe this nightmare can be brought to an end by the death of Stalin kind of situation. Oh, <laughs> that scene was replaying in my head. A dictator seeing a little note slip out of this recording of whatever it was, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, from the really annoyed pianist who'd be, who had her evening ruined, wishing him dead, and then he falls over and dies. It would be lovely to see Putin end like that. There is no possible way that Putin's power is being enhanced right now. It's, I'm sure, a very tight grip and a, a very chilling effect he has on anybody who is in any way discussing possible ways of sidelining or removing him or getting him to countermand this reckless war, this mega epic miscalculation, but that the costs of doing that are so high that let's just assume he isn't about to die and he isn't about to be strangled with piano wire. We're going to see a dictator who could, who's going to keep a, a tighter grip than he had before because he's going to be more paranoid. He's going to be feeling less secure. He's going to be more dependent on others, notably China, and therefore presumably more willing to make domestic threatening concessions to China in order to keep his power. We saw on Monday him meeting the regional CSTO leaders, five, five of them, only one, Lukashenko of Belarusia, was prepared to support what he's doing in Ukraine. The other four, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Armenia were not pretty remarkable. These are near abroad, if not client states, then or puppets, certainly very, very close allies. They're not prepared to support him. We've got former colonels, greatly respected defense analysts on TV saying that Russia is geopolitically isolated. So I'm trying to think of a good way that a live, relatively healthy Putin can thrive in this job. And I can't. You also asked that question about, like, is is Russia better without Putin? And I think, you know, one thing to note from that piece that that we I, with a co-author that I did in Politico was to try to push back on this notion that after Putin, it could be worse. Right. Because what you hear in the Russia community over and over and over is be careful what you wish for. It just might be worse. And so what we want, what I did in this piece is we actually went and looked at all of these longtime leaders like Putin. So these leaders that have been there 20 years or more, a lot of them highly personalized to see, well, what does happen when they leave? And we looked at, you know, the propensity for coups and protests and like larger state-based violence that include more than 25 deaths. And the moral of the story that we took away from the data was that actually these types of domestic instability are less likely to happen after a longtime leader leaves than in the latter years of a longtime leader's tenure. So we tried to push back on this notion of like, be careful what you wish for to suggest, you know, what might happen, anything might happen, but we tried to at least make a kind of empirical data-based argument that it's unlikely to be worse and given Russia's higher levels of wealth and education, that there is some upside potential that you might see some liberalization. And what we found after these longtime leaders leave is although you tend to have another form of authoritarianism, that at least repression eases and there are some, there are some improvements. So I guess our moral of the story is it's for Russians to decide, but the U.S. and others shouldn't hold punches for fear that what comes next might be worse because we think that's unlikely to be the case. Interesting. So Putin is odious, horrible leader. One of the other world leaders that I've always felt was particularly odious is the president of Turkey. 
president of Turkey sort of won a little bit of kind of positive coverage recently as, as Turkey has come to the aid of Ukraine on a number of things. And then in the past couple of days, really, he sort of reverted to type and said, oh, no, we don't want Sweden and Finland into NATO because, I mean, essentially because their attitude on the Kurds is not what he'd like to see. Michael, I've noticed you've made some comments on this, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I I gathered from you that you saw this as a negotiating ploy more than a kind of a roadblock. What's your view of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I talked to some uh, Turkish diplomats and Turkish national security officials who are not members of EKP, by the way. One of them joked with me that, you know, his wings had been clipped in the last several years, and then they realized that Islamists aren't very good at doing foreign policy and diplomacy. So they've brought in some of the secularists to kind of revivify Turkey's position on the international scene. You know, Erdogan is he's he's prone to these temper tantrums, to kind of forcing himself into the middle of a conversation where he is or should be at best a marginal player. I see no indication that Turkey is about to veto the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO membership status. You, you bring up the Kurds. One of the things that they're they're big on with respect to Scandinavia, it's not the Kurds, it's the PKK, the, the Kurdistan Workers Party. Scandinavian countries have allowed a lot of dissidents and, and former PKK members to kind of pitch their, their, their tents in Stockholm and Copenhagen and so on. And so you have to understand, I mean, the preternatural obsession for all Turkish national security, and this, this cuts across all swaths of the ideological spectrum from the nationalist right to the, the left to the Islamist AKP party, they've been fighting this 40-year war with the PKK they were really exercised when the United States essentially put all of its eggs in the basket of supporting the YPG in Syria as its main counterterrorism proxy against ISIS. The YPG is essentially just the PKK in Syria. So I think this is Erdogan's way of trying to wrest some, I don't know, concessions or get some kind of negotiated solution, which is probably going to be more of a sop than anything else. So I could well see the Swedes and the Finns saying, oh, yes, you know, we agree to tamped down on, for instance, pro-PKK demonstrations in Stockholm, of which there was one, I think, in the last few days, something of that nature. But as you alluded to, David, look, Turkey's role behind the scenes in helping Ukraine defend itself is a lot greater than what what has publicly been broadcast. And that's for a reason, right? Because Erdogan has this weird bromance with Putin. Their differences tend to be the, the, the narcissism of the tiny difference, as Freud would say. They, they see eye to eye on a lot of things, including their international isolation. That said, for whatever reason, Erdogan has been very bullish on helping Ukraine. The number of Bayraktar TB2s that have been sold to Ukraine, I'm not allowed to tell you that, how many there are, because I was sworn to secrecy. But suffice it to say, it's a, a higher number than is publicly known. And there were rules put in place. Ankara did not want these, you know, the attacks used or the, the sorties of the TB2s to be advertised, at least at the start of the war. But now they realize this is a great marketing tool for them because they want to sell these drones to everybody else. So now you've noticed, for instance, the bombardment at Snake Island. The Ukrainians have taken out air defense systems. They took out two, two uh, Russian cutters, I think a helicopter using these systems. Turkey is it's it's its own kind of black box, but for whatever reason, and and you know, I'll eat my words and and proclaim myself very naive if this happens. I do not see Ankara spoiling this 
massive, massive development at the geopolitical level. I agree. It to me seems like, you know, trying to extract some concessions, get something out of the deal. But I also can't imagine that in the at the end of the day that Turkey would block this. Can you see Hungary blocking it? Anybody blocking it? No. I mean, I think that they've done all of the kind of necessary diplomatic legwork. They've done their homework, right? They've been active diplomatically in all of the capitals. I mean, I think they understand, you know, the risk that is involved in the period between the time that they put in their application and the time it would take all the member states to ratify. And I don't think that they would have moved forward if there were going to be serious reservations about having that ratified in in national capitals. So my sense is, you know, there is overwhelming support. I mean, we expect it to pass our U.S. Congress is even, you know, ahead of the August recess. So, no, I don't I don't anticipate any roadblocks. You never know what Rand Paul's going to do. But um, Ed, one of the things, and, and, and we've talked about it here several times, but there have been further developments that I find so fascinating about this is what it reveals about Europe that we never thought was possible, how it changes Europe. Finland and Sweden, historically neutral, have essentially run enthusiastically into the arms of NATO. I saw a story the other day about Switzerland tilting towards NATO after neutrality for hundreds, hundreds of years. Putin then made uh, very aggressive comments about what this would mean for Sweden and Finland if they were to enter NATO. And Denmark announced that they and the other Nordic states would, if Putin threatened Sweden and Finland, they would step up in a kind of a collective Baltic partnership. The Baltics have leaned forward on all of this. Meanwhile, Germany, not so much. Italy today announced that they were setting up ruble and lira accounts so that they could pay, or ruble and dollar accounts, so they could pay for Russian oil and gas, which of course just plays right into the hands of Putin and keeping them afloat. The big countries of Europe are lagging the smaller countries of Europe. The formerly politically active countries of Europe are lagging the formerly more neutral countries of Europe. What do you make of it all? It's kind of the inverse of the sort of European core, isn't it? Because the other country, in addition to Denmark and Norway, that are offered Finland and Sweden, this interim de facto NATO membership, I mean, sort of mini mini NATO, if you like, that an attack on them in this period transition before they're ratified will result in, in, in their support. Uh, has also been joined by Britain. So it's Denmark, Norway and Britain, as I, I, I believe, and one of the Baltics, Estonia. Britain, of course, has left the European Union and Poland, which is, you know, perhaps the, amongst the most muscular and certainly the biggest frontline state involved has been a bad boy of the European Union for good reasons. The European Union has felt very alienated from the, the law and justice government there. And then, of course, you've got uh, the Scandinavians have always been slightly indifferent European members, and not all of them are members of the European Union, Norway being um, the, um, the one. So it's the fringes, the ex-European Union members, and not the, the sort of core members of Europe, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, that are stepping up um, here. They're being sort of dragged along quite reluctantly. Macron's role continues to puzzle me, even though he is a French president and there is a history 
a French president striking different poses and trying to carve out different roles for themselves. I've been particularly surprised since the, his re-election, when he's much more emboldened and empowered, that, that he's continued to try and provide a non-existent off-ramp to Putin, who wouldn't take it anyway. So that, that's puzzled me. Overall, though, in spite of all these nuances and these circles and inner circles, slightly weak inner core and very muscular outer core, um, I think it's pretty remarkable even how far Germany and Italy have come. Draghi has been, I think, proven to be one of the best European leaders in this situation. He's taken practical steps you would have found very hard to imagine Italy doing, overshadowed by Germany, which has clearly had a, a foreign policy revolution. And those who are pushing the revolution in Germany, the Green Party, are getting rewarded in state polls. And those who have been foot-dragging, notably the SPD, have been punished in state polls. So the German electorate is setting the pace here. And the pace, it might not be as fast as we want, but it's remarkable given where Germany was a few weeks ago. So overall, notwithstanding all those nuances, I would say two things. One, Europe remains surprisingly united, and I don't see that breaking down soon even if inflation continues to get higher. And secondly, just from a, my own parochial perspective, it puts Brexit into context. I wish it hadn't happened. I don't think it's reversible. But the commonality between Britain and its democratic neighbours in the European Union is just reaffirmed so strongly by what's happening that it makes Britain's exit from that body just seem less less existential than it would have on February the 23rd. Very interesting, a very interesting turn of events. And, you know, you see countries that were more pacifist being more aggressive, countries that were more left-leaning being more aggressive, the right wing traditionally tougher on security issues, but also has sort of ties to Putin dragging their feet, not everywhere, because I never know exactly where Boris Johnson is at any given moment, and the polls have sort of flipped around. But the, 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 the change in the constellation of things is really striking. This is the moment in the show where we take a break and we say goodbye to folks who are joining us from the general public and tell them that uh, if you want to get the rest of our podcasts and the rest of all the other content we create, all you have to do is become a member. It's not that expensive, kind of like a cup of coffee a month. And you get a lot more content, a third more of every podcast, plus a lot of other content. And uh, so you'll probably like it, and we encourage you to try it. We're, uh, I think, in the midst of a, actually a record week this week in terms of new memberships, and we're glad for that and grateful for it. For all of your new members, hang around. You'll get to hear the rest of this episode, and we'll talk about what's happening now on the ground in Ukraine when we get back. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.